Just going to ask you to turn again to Ephesians, nearly finished, Ephesians chapter 6, and we'll begin from verse 10. So Ephesians chapter 6 from verse 10. I was nearly embarrassed and I turned to Philippians chapter 4, so that could have been quite difficult, but anyway, we're okay. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Pray also for me, that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me, so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Thank God for his word. Let's just come. Father, we just think of the situation of the Apostle Paul as he wrote these words. He was chained. He was a prisoner of the the Roman authorities and his fate was absolutely uncertain. And yet, Lord, when he asks for prayer, he doesn't ask to be rescued. He doesn't ask that you might deliver him physically, but he asks that you might help him and use him to glorify your name. That's the focus of his life, to live for your glory, whatever this world might throw against him. And Father, we pray, more and more, may that be the focus of our lives too. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the last time we looked at Ephesians using the... the That's kind of buzzing there. I don't know if there's anything going on, just that speaker there. Oh, Simon, you're really helpful. Thank you. Thanks very much. Anyway, the last time I said we looked uh, together at Ephesians, using the first three verses of this passage, we focused on our need there to know our enemy. Satan, the devil, the deceiver, the destroyer. We need to know, we saw, who he is, how he operates, where he operates. But also, we covered last time, the fact that in addition, we need to know our God. Know him. And know that we are called to face this powerful and malicious enemy, 
Not in our own strength. Not by our own efforts and abilities. But, verse 10, in the Lord and in his mighty power. What we're going to move on to look at now tonight are the resources that God provides us to fight this battle, to face this enemy, the famous armor of God. Now, previously, I suggest to you last time that, that Paul here, what he does is he takes the armor, most probably being worn by the, the Roman soldiers who were guarding him as he writes this letter, and then uses it piece by piece to open up these resources that God has provided for his people. Well, having now looked into this in a little bit more detail, I would like to, to just step back from this just a little bit, but also add to this something that I think is actually very significant. So, while I do still think that Paul's description of the armor of God here was surely inspired by his past experience of exposure to Roman soldiers, and though he was, in all probability, chained by the wrist at this time to a Roman soldier as he dictated Ephesians. That's suggested, I think, in verse 20, where he talks of himself as an ambassador in chains. Yet at the same time, it is highly unlikely that a Roman soldier performing this kind of duty would actually have been formally armoured, fully armoured on a day-by-day basis. There wouldn't be any necessity for that. Paul wasn't that kind of prisoner. But also, I now don't believe that Paul's use of this Roman armour as an illustration is actually intended as a destination. Rather, this is his starting point. What this is pointing towards, though, intended to point towards, is the armour of God. Because, you see, one of the ways that the Old Testament pictures the Lord is as the divine warrior. The divine warrior who in Psalm 24 verse 8 is spoken of as being strong and mighty in battle. And in places like Ephesians 11, no, not Ephesians, Isaiah 11, Isaiah 59, the armor there of this divine warrior is laid out for us in ways that, that really clearly resonate with what we find Paul saying here in Ephesians 6, for example, Isaiah 59, 17 says, He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. So you see then, God is sharing his armor, his weapons with us. We are called to take up his armor and to take up his weapons before we face the powers of of evil. Now, who could fail to be encouraged by that? It's not just like a kind of armor, set armor God gives to us, but it's His armor that He gifts to us. There's one or two other things that I'd like to point out to you before we move in, move in to, to look at this armor piece by piece. First of all, there's a word that's repeated four times in these verses stand. Verse 11. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Verse 13, stand your ground. Verse 14, stand firm. And of course, there's another stand I should have mentioned in verse 13, that after you've done everything, to stand. And our old friend Harold Hona, he says here, the one who stands 
is not pushed around, but firmly holds his or her position. In terms of warfare, it does not connote an offensive, but rather a defensive stance to hold one's ground. Now, of course, armed with the armour of God, we can take our stand against the devil. We can resist him. And James tells us in James 4, 7, that if we resist the devil, he will flee from you. You see, if we put on the armour, our armour, then we can. That's enough for the devil. He'll flee. He'll move on, that is, to other easier targets. But, however, if we don't put our armour on, and if we are not standing in the Lord, if we're not firmly rooted in him, then we are easy prey. Easy prey. However, what I also think this suggests, for me anyway, is that by and large, the vast majority of Christians should not seek out spiritual conflict. For a while, I think it's now died away significantly. There was fairly recently, there was something of a trend in some quarters of the church for spiritual warfare. There's a lot of talk about spiritual warfare in the sense of, of Christians actively seeking out opportunities to take on the evil. And I don't think that's what the Bible tells us to do. And I don't think it's wise. For while we are to take a stand, while we are to hold our ground against the forces of evil, and while, as we say, if, if we do take a stand, if we do resist them, the devil will often flee. Yet, though in Christ we have the victory, however, in ourselves, in our flesh, in our human frailty, we are too weak and flawed to willingly take on such a mighty enemy. In the Lord... We are called and enabled, I believe, to face the challenges that come our way. But we are not told to seek out spiritual conflict willy-nilly. God doesn't tell us to do that. Also, as far as the armour itself is concerned, please remember here that this is the armour that's required for us and given to us, not just as individuals, but also given to us as a church, as a body. In fact, the, these words of Paul were originally written to a church, not to an individual. And what this means is if anyone within the church refuses to wear this armor and by so doing leaves themselves open to the devil's attacks, then not only do they suffer, but the church suffers. As Christians break ranks, that gives the devil then, through that Christian, a way in to divide and destroy. Also, as well as that, it is the whole of this armour that we need. There's no one part that we can do without. Each part is essential. We need the whole armour of God if we're to be protected against the enemy and be able to effectively live this Christian life. Just one final quote before we move into the armour itself, and it's from Michael Griffiths, who was at one time the principal of uh, what was once the London Bible College, and he said, the chief sin of Christians is neglect. It's not that we need some new, hitherto secret, unrevealed blessing, but rather 
that we have been neglecting secrets to which we've long given lip service and intellectual assent, but which we have not experienced and enjoyed. It is not that God does not provide us all that we need to perfect the new community, but that we have neglected the means which God has graciously provided. So, don't make the mistake then, tonight, of switching off thinking that this is all stuff that you've heard before and you know it all, because, well, maybe you might know a lot of it in your mind, yet, you know, if we really knew the truth that Paul speaks of here in our experience, if we really knew it, if we were really doing it, then what different people and what a different community we would be. Well, the first piece of the armour we're going to look at, we find in verse 14, the belt of truth. Now, the belt for the Roman soldier was a tremendously important piece of equipment because it was the belt that gathered together and that held together all the other pieces of clothing and armour that he had. And particularly, it was the belt that held the sword. So then, as a soldier marched into battle, it was his belt that will enable him to move freely and to fight then effectively. So you see, as Paul here speaks of the belt of truth, what he's actually doing is he's emphasizing the importance of truth to the Christian and to the church. The question here, though, is just what in this particular instance does Paul mean by truth? Is he speaking of the truth in the sense of the, the teaching of the Bible? And so he's emphasizing the need for the church to hold to right doctrine, to teach right doctrine, so that in this way the church might be able to see through the devil's tactics and lies and, and drive him out from their midst. Well, this may well be part of what Paul intended here, and, it, and it's certainly true. That is true. But however, in the source verse for this verse, a few, uh, I don't keep on saying that, Isaiah 11.5. In Isaiah 11.5, it's not truth as such that's mentioned as the belt of the Lord, but rather it's, it's faithfulness. It's a slight variant of truth. And what that, I think, perhaps suggests is that what was actually at the forefront of Paul's mind as he, as he spoke here was truth in terms of character. That is integrity, honesty, being straightforward, both within and in our inward being, and as a consequence of that, also in our outward dealings and in our relationships with other people. With this kind of inner and outer attitude of heart and practical action flowing from that being vitally important for both the Christian and for the church. And Warren Wearsby, he says of this, once a lie gets into the life of a believer, everything begins to fall apart. For over a year, King David lied about his sin with Bathsheba and nothing went right. Psalm 32 and 51 tell there of the price he paid. And Michael Griffiths, again, this time out of his missionary experience, he gives a, an example of this. He says, I still remember a Japanese man who joined himself to our little congregation. 
He brought people to meetings, spoke in the open air, and offered for house meeting the rooms he shared with his sister. Yet there was a nagging doubt in some of our minds about him, which came sharply into focus when we discovered this girl was not his sister. Thereafter, we did not know what we could could believe. Did he come from where he said? Had he been converted when he said? Having forfeited his credibility and lost his belt of integrity, we did not know from that point on how much he said was true. So integrity then, honesty, straightforwardness, these hold our life together and enable us to move forward spiritually, individually, and as a church. But lose truth, though. Lose integrity. And everything begins to fall apart. People feel they just can't trust us anymore. The next piece of armor we also find in verse 14. The breastplate of righteousness. Now again... There are two different understandings of righteousness in the Bible. First, there is spiritual righteousness. The righteousness that becomes ours through faith in Christ. His righteousness, which we make ours as we put our trust in him. That righteousness of Christ becomes ours. But there is also moral righteousness. That is righteousness of lifestyle and of behavior, which we then offer back to Christ as a love offering. That righteousness that is a proof that his righteousness of spirit has truly become ours. Now, both of these, I think, have a place here. For when the devil seeks to accuse us and to attack us in our heart and mind, we say it's then that the breastplate of our spiritual righteousness in Christ can protect us. Because whatever he throws at us, however he accuses us, we know that no matter what, we are Christ. Not because of what we are, but because of what he has done, who he is. However though, if in the area of our moral righteousness of living out our faith, we begin to let our breastplate slip by the way we live. Well then, we lay ourselves right open to Satan's attack. Because while only the most grievous and consistent life of sin should lead us to have any real doubts about our salvation, yet when sin in any form begins to occur regularly in our lives, then Satan will attack us. He'll keep on there. And many of us in our weakness will doubt. The answer here, I believe, is to do what Paul recommends in Acts 24, 16, where he says that I always strive to keep my conscience clear before God and man. And what Paul's talking about is keeping short accounts with God and man. What he's talking about is dealing instantly with our sin. And not leaving any sin unconfessed and unrepented of. I want to say, please remember, as we talk of all this, that it's not only we who are affected by our sin. It's not only we who are affected by our failure to wear that breastplate of righteousness. Because you see, if a Roman company or a legion 
went out into battle with a number of them having defective breastplates, then they wouldn't expect to fare too well in whatever battle they faced. In the same way, if there is serious ongoing sin in a fellowship, if there is serious ongoing sin in the life of a Christian that they do not deal with, then that affects the whole church. Not just them, the whole church. It affects our morale as we're all hurt and saddened by this. It undermines our faith as we wonder, you know, looking at this, how can God work through a people such as we are? And it leaves us wide open to the devil's attack. We need righteous lives then. We need clear consciences before God if we're effectively to defend both ourselves and our church. The next piece of armour we find in verse 15. Feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Now again, the Old Testament parallel to this passage I think helps us to understand better just what Paul is, is actually getting at here. Isaiah 52 verse 7 it says, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation. And to understand this, it helps to know that the Roman soldier was provided with footwear, like any properly equipped soldier throughout history, provided with footwear that was light enough, a low half-boot sandal, to enable them to move quickly into position. And yet, that was strong enough. Several layers of leather given a sole of three quarters of an inch thick and studded with hollow hobnails. Strong enough to allow them to move over the roughest of terrain with ease. Now, what I believe this is actually getting at is that if, if we're to defend ourselves in the rough terrain of this world, this world which is the enemy's territory. And more than that, if we are to manage to turn him back and bring to others the good news of the liberating peace of Jesus Christ, then we have to be able to respond to where the enemy is attacking. Or even see where he is weakest so that we can advance against him. But it's no use standing ready and eager to fight with our weapons all in place. Well, the enemy's actually attacking elsewhere. That's no use. And that's what I think we do as Christians and do as the church have done far too often. We fight yesterday's battles with yesterday's methods. And then we wonder why people aren't responding as we believe they should to this wonderful gospel of peace. I think what instead we need to learn to do and to be, as in Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 9, 22, to be all things to all men. And that is, we should never let go of, we should never dilute in any way the central principles of the gospel. But we should always be willing to adjust our methods, to adapt our presentation in order to be effective in terms of the prevailing culture we're a part of. You see, we have to have our eyes open 
to see what's happening around us in enemy territory. And then, like a Roman soldier, we need to be quick on our feet, ready to respond, ready to adapt. Next, we move to verse 16, where we find the shield of faith. And what this brings out, I believe, is, is just how dependent we are on one another. If you see, a Roman battle shield was large and oblong. It was three quarters of a metre by one and a half metres tall. You would never have been able to see Paul if he'd stood behind it. All right, Paul? So it was one and a half metres, and it was a hand's breadth thick. And it was made of two plates of wood, two planks of wood, that were glued together and that were then covered by canvas and then by leather. It had a metal rim at the bottom in case it banged on the ground. And at its centre, it had a round metal boss, if you like. And this was intended to deflect arrows or spears or stones. And they could bend down and they could stand behind us. But when an enemy attacked in force, what they did then was they stood solidly together. They stood together and together they formed a solid defensive wall. No Roman soldier would ever willingly stand alone in battle because they knew that if they did, then quickly they'd be surrounded and they would be killed. It's exactly the same in the church. We cannot stand alone or stand divided or else quickly we will fall. We're supposed to stand side by side, close together, and protect each other with the shield of faith. That is seek to protect one another, to encourage one another, to keep on trusting, to keep on remembering the promises of God and the past experience we have of his faithfulness. We need to come together and share his word, pray for and care for one another. And as we do these things, as we are promoting faith, we are taking up the shield of faith. And together, we then will be able to put out those flaming arrows of the evil one. The different ways the devil attacks our faith. If we stand together in faith, that we can defeat him. The next piece of armor we find in verse 17. The helmet of salvation. Now in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 8, Paul calls this helmet the hope of salvation. And, and this again, I, I think, gives us more insight into what Paul's actually getting at here. What he's talking about is he's talking about those times when the devil seeks to attack us through our minds by making us disillusioned and discouraged. Times when he tries to, to get us to the point where we're asking the questions that the psalmist sometimes asks. Why do the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? And again, what Paul, I believe here, is trying to get us to do is to get us to adopt an attitude that's like his own. Like say, for example, in Romans 8.18, where he says, he says there, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. What he's saying then is that when the devil attacks you in this kind of way, when he tries to get you to focus on your life circumstances or even the life circumstances of others and tries to discourage you and tries to pull you down and leave you 
defeated, then don't listen to him. Instead, remember your helmet of salvation. That is, remember that in Jesus, the victory has been won and that the hope of victory is certain and secure. Do that and you'll soon send your accuser back in. However, of course, the alternative to this is to just leave this helmet to the one side. That is to forget about the victory that's been won. To forget about the hope of what's yet to come and instead be overwhelmed by our circumstances. Something that then expresses itself, presents itself in a negative, critical, pessimistic spirit. You know, there's too much of that around in the church today. Its roots, though, are in Satan's attacks. And unless we're aware of this, and unless we take hold of the resources God gives us, unless we take hold of that helmet and hope of salvation, the devil will keep us right down in the depths of despair. The final piece of armor is the sword of the Spirit, that is the Word of God. Now, the best example of the Word being used as a sword defensively is, of course, the example of Jesus in the wilderness temptation. For three times there, the devil tried to tempt Jesus. And three times Jesus responded by quoting God's word back to the devil. By using Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 9. They are words from scripture that speak of man depending on God for his need. Of man not putting God to the test. Of the fact that man must worship God Alone. I think similarly, we need to learn to use the word of God as a defensive weapon. We need to follow the example that the psalmist speaks of in Psalm 119, 11, where he says, I have hidden your word in my heart, that I might not sin against you. And what this is about is it's about reading God's word. It's about soaking in God's word. It's about assimilating God's word. Even about memorizing God's word. So that with that word in your heart, in your moment of need, you can bring that to mind and you can use it to defend yourself against the evil one. However, God's word is not only a defensive weapon, it's also a very effective offensive weapon as well. Because you see, if we are open to the Spirit and sensitive to the Spirit, and if we're ready to be obedient and ready to step out in faith, then God's Word can be used and we can be used to deliver God's Word in such a way that Christians and non-Christians alike can be encouraged to open their hearts, their lives to God and can be set free from Satan's power and influence. And I've seen this happen. I'm sure many of you have as well. People who've never known God. Others who've grown cold in their faith. And Satan has got them and he's got them held tight in his grasp. But then a faithful Christian has brought God's word to them. And by the power of the Spirit, God has used his word. It's been the right word, the appropriate word for that person at that time. It's come together and you can almost see them being set free. You can almost visibly see love and joy and peace flooding into their lives. And you know, this is happening. 
It's happening today. It's happening at an incredible rate in parts of our world, and it's happening right now. In parts of Asia and South America, Africa, there's tremendous growth in the church. I saw this personally when I visited India. I saw there an openness to the gospel and people hearing the gospel for the first time and their eyes just, you know, the joy was there to see that they were loved by God and they were coming, trusting in the Lord in numbers. I saw that in a way that in the UK, I've never seen, seen before in my life because, you know, it's a very different context we live in here. We've had the gospel for millennia. And our media today works unceasingly at trying to convince our nation that we're beyond faith, that we don't need God anymore. We've no need of him. And many people have bought into that, which then makes us an incredibly tough environment to share Christ. And because of this, we, the church, we become disillusioned and discouraged. We become timid and afraid. But I say to you, Listen, this tide can, and I believe this tide will, turn again. And we, right now, can play our part in this. As we refuse to listen to the devil's lies, and instead choose to do what Paul commands us here to do. Put your armour on. I believe with God's help, as we take hold of God's resources his armour that he has given to us, I believe we can win this battle again and see our nation turn round once more. I believe that. I pray you do too. Let's come to God now in prayer. Father, we want to thank you that, that you have given us everything that we need in Jesus Christ. You've given us all that we need to be able to stand against the powers of evil. And all that we need to be able to take this gospel in meaningful ways. Lord, not everyone will receive. Not everyone will be eager to hear. But Lord, right now there are people out there, people around us in the streets around us, living in our street, working where we work. There are people who know that life is empty, who know that there's something missing who know that beyond death there must be more, and yet who've never really heard the gospel. All they've heard is the negativity and pessimism of our society. Oh, Father, we pray, help us to be people ready to be used by you. Help us to take up the armor, the resources that you've given us, and to take your word to a needy world. Help us to do this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.